be seated. Amen. If you would, bow with me in prayer, and then we're going to open God's Word together. But let's pray first before we do. Lord, we thank you uh, for this day. We thank you for this beautiful weather. We thank you for this place that you have provided that we can gather together as your people. Uh, We thank you, as we just sang, uh, that we love you because you first loved us. Uh, We thank you for that glorious truth of of your grace to us and what it means for us. We pray that as we think on these things today, that you would impress them afresh on our hearts, that we would see more clearly uh, your glory and your beauty, that we would just grow in our love and our affection for you. Uh, We pray that as we open your word this morning, uh, that you would lead and guide our time, that you would take the eternal truths of your word and apply them uh, to our hearts and our minds, that you would show us uh, just the glorious truth of who you are and what you've done for us. And we just confess uh, we can't do that without you moving in this place. And so we ask that you would do that this morning, that you would take the truth of your word and that you would apply it to, uh, uh, to our hearts and our minds and we would leave here changed, having seen you more fully. Uh, we thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, there's, a, there's a truth to uh, uh, hard work or, or struggling with something, uh, kind of stretching yourself uh, that really will, will pay dividends in the end. If you've ever thought about this, this applies to a whole lot of things. Uh, sometimes I think about it in the terms of uh, exercise. Uh, they say like when you lift weights or, or when you work out really hard and, and you tear your muscles down and they tear, that when they repair and when they kind of come back, they come back stronger. And so really pushing yourself really uh, kind of pushing yourself to your limits has lasting effects, kind of stretching yourself. Uh, We see that like physical workouts, that kind of thing. We also see that is true uh, in our brains. Uh, Brain research, what they tell us about how our brains work, that that, uh, kind of working out your brain, if you will, thinking deeply about things, wrestling with them, stretching your understanding, reading about things that maybe you don't understand, that you've really got to fight to understand, uh, helps you. It helps you grow in your understanding and your intelligence. And so uh, th- that's just a true statement in a lot of different ways. And, and I start there, and I mention that because as we've been walking through the book of Acts, what we've been doing most weeks is taking a pretty big section uh, of a passage in Acts. Like if you were with us last week, we looked at Acts chapter 13, verse 13 to the end of the chapter. We covered almost 40 verses. And what we saw was Paul and Barnabas, as the church has been growing and going out, if you've been with us, Acts is the story of the early church from the time of Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, to how it grows over the face of the earth. And it covers from about A.D. 30 to about A.D. 63. And we're right in the middle of that time now as we're in chapter 13. And what we looked at last week as we were, as we were going through that is Paul and Barnabas have been sent out by the church uh, on these missionary journeys. And they've gone out to, to proclaim the gospel, and we saw they go into different places. They go into the synagogues, and they teach, and they tell people about what has happened. And what we looked at last week really was an overview of the entire Bible, of how what Paul was saying is Jesus is the whole point of the Bible. And he goes into these synagogues, and he preaches, and he teaches this, and he shows people this. And that's what we talked about last week, and we covered a lot of ground, a lot of uh, big ideas. Uh, today, if you saw in your bulletin, we're actually going to stop and we're going to look at one verse. Right? So I'm kind of sc- overcorrecting and swinging back to the other side. Really, we're going to spend time on about half a verse today. Really, the second half of that verse 
48 and chapter 13. And I just want to say, as we start to look at it, if you just want to look at that verse, this comes at the end of Paul preaching in the synagogues, and there's people coming to faith, but some of the Jews reject what he says, and so he turns, and he says, the gospel now goes to the Gentiles, and it's for all people, and he's proclaiming this, and then you get to verse 48, and it says this, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And then this is what we're going to focus on today. And Luke just kind of, the author of Acts just kind of slips this in there. But he says something that is so huge right here in the second half of the verse. And the second half says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And he just says that, kind of slips that out in there. Happens a few different times in Acts where he says something very similar. And he's talking about who believes. And why they believe. And when we start to get into this and we start to kind of dig deep into this, I just want to say to you, as we begin this morning, we are wading into some deeper theological waters. And so I'm just going to say this from the beginning. It is good for us to be stretched and it is good for us to think deeply about the things that God tells us to think deeply about. But the truth is, this might be kind of hard. Um, It might offend you. Uh, hopefully I'm not offending you, but you might be offended by what God's Word says. And, and so I just say that from the beginning as we look at it, that there may be some things here that you kind of go, oh, wait a second, what are you saying? And so a couple caveats as we begin. As we're going to dig into what's really being said in that verse and what Scripture says about that and around it. The first thing I want to say to you is, is if this is new to you, and you have some objections, or you go, wait a second, I'm not sure about that, say, that's okay, Uh, that's a good thing, and let this be the start of the conversation. We're not going to cover everything there is to cover on the topic today. You may have questions, and that's good. I'm glad that we have our covered dish today. And so if it brings up questions, let's sit down and talk about those things together. Let this be an ongoing conversation. Second thing I want to say before we even jump into this is this is not meant to shake you up or upset you, or frustrate you. Uh, But what we're going to say, and I'm going to say it fairly unapologetically, uh, I don't mean it to come across that way, but I have a strong conviction that this is what God's Word teaches. And so what I would say to you, though, is the reason we're doing this is we want God to be the center of all things. I want our theology to be centered and grounded on that it begins and ends with God and His grace. And so that's why... We're looking at this. But then lastly, I just want to say to you, if, if this maybe shakes you up a little bit or you, you bring some questions to mind, I just want to say to you, I believe this is profoundly biblical. I'm going to read you a lot of verses. We're going to hit on a lot of different verses and a lot of things that Scripture says. And I think it's going to bear out what I'm, what I'm presenting to you. It's not my idea. I think the Bible teaches this. And so with that said, I want us to think about just the second half of that verse and what is it that Luke's pointing out to us when he says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. And so I want to start this way before we even dig into that and just get to some of maybe uh, the things that it's not saying. Uh, We're going to cover maybe some objections that you might have, but then I'm going to end with why I think this is really good news. But before we do any of that, I just want to read you some different passages. I'm going to try to make as little comment as possible, just kind of reading Scripture and letting you wrestle with that, and then we're going to kind of unpack that together. And so I want to go to Ephesians 1, which Dan just read to us just a second ago, and highlight just a couple of things. You don't have to turn there. You're welcome to if you want to, but I'm going to skip around on a couple different verses here. 
so it may be hard to keep up of going to it. And so if you'd rather just listen, I'm going to read slowly. You can jot down where these are or come see me and I'll give you all the references and we can look at those in depth together. But starting in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul writes this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And so he says, God chose us before the foundation of the world, and the way that he did that was according to his own will. Then 2 Timothy 1, Paul goes a little deeper into this, and he says, he saved us. And he called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his purpose and his grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And so what you have in those two passages is it says that before the foundation of the world, that God predestined us to know him according to his will, not because of any work, but because of his own purpose and grace. But that's not the only places it says that. It says that a whole lot in the Bible. Romans 9, he's talking about Jacob and Esau. And God chooses to give the blessing to Jacob, who is younger than his brother Esau. It goes against the way they thought everything goes. And he chooses to bless Jacob. And it says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, talking about their mother, was told the older will serve the younger. So what it says is is God chose Jacob for this blessing in this way, and it had nothing to do with anything they'd done because they weren't yet born and they hadn't done anything. And so we see this over and over in Scripture, and what we get is the reason that we come to saving faith is because God sovereignly chose you before the foundation of the world, before you did anything. That means salvation rests with God's sovereign choice. And when we hear that, there's all kinds of things that come to mind. And there's a lot of things that we, uh, maybe questions that come and struggles that come. I think there's some errors that come. Practically, we hear it, and we go, okay, I've got to make sense of that. And so what happens? And I'll tell you, I've faced this one a lot. So I'll start here for just a second about what this is not saying. I think there's a very easy error that we go right into. And the reason I say that is because, one, I've heard it a lot, but I also remember the first time I heard this idea ever, vividly. I was a junior in high school and went to a Christian high school. Mr. Bear, my teacher, presented this idea of God's sovereign election. And I vividly remember looking around the class, and half my class was furious, angry. That can't be right. And I remember looking around the class and thinking, why are these people so upset? What is the big deal? And this is what I did, right? And so maybe you're doing this very thing, but this is what I did at that time at 16, 17 years old. I went, well, God knows everything I'm going to choose. God knows it all. Of course he knows. Of course he knows before the foundation of the earth, because he knows what I think before I even think it. So, yeah, no problem. God knew what I was going to choose before I chose it, and so that's fine, no problem. And that's the way I dismissed it. 
And I just thought, ah, what's the big deal? And I remember thinking, why are people upset of this? And then what I did is I just kind of liberally apply that idea to any passage that talks about God's sovereignty or his choice or predestination or foreknowledge or any of these things that the Bible says over and over and over and over again. But there's a problem with that. What happens is we take that and we apply it to, let's say, Romans 8. Romans 8 says this, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So you take that and you say, those he foreknew, he then predestined to become Christians, to become like Jesus, to become in him. And that's what Paul's talking about. We go, okay, well, foreknew. He knew the choices I was going to make. There it is. But here's where I believe that's an error. I believe that's a problem, and here's why. Foreknowledge in the Bible is never talked about in that term can't find anywhere in the Bible where this idea of to know or foreknowledge has to do with knowing events that are going to take place later on in the sense of I know what you're going to do. That's not what it means. In fact, to know in the Bible is something very different. When we talk about foreknowledge or knowing in that way, biblically it means to be in a saving relationship or an intimate relationship with someone else. I'll give you an example. Adam knew his wife Eve. Right? You know what I'm talking about. You can fill in the blanks there. Right? It's talking about a sexual intimacy in marriage. Not just that he knew who she was, but they now had become one physically as they unite together in marriage. They now know each other in another way. Do you understand? Right? Like most of you in the room, I know you to some extent. I don't know any of you the way I know my wife. There's a difference there. And that's what the Bible talks about when it talks about foreknowledge in this intimacy of a relationship, a saving relationship that God has with his people. And so when you read Romans 8, it's not God looked down the corridor of time and he saw what you were going to do and then he predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. It's no, it would be better to say that he sees our relationship with him. He saw ahead. Long ago, and in a saving relationship to himself, he has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. And it doesn't just say it there. None of these are isolation. The Bible says this over and over and over again. 1 Corinthians 8.3, but if one loves God, one is known by him. That's not to say that if you love God or you're in this relationship with him, now he knows who you are and he doesn't know who anybody else is. God knows everything, and he knows all people, and all things, and all places. But there's a difference in the way it talks about knowing you. Think about what Jesus says. He says there's going to be some that stand before him on the day of judgment, and he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. It's not that there's going to be people who show up, and in judgment, and Jesus goes, I can't place you, I don't know who you are. He's going to say, I didn't know you in this loving, saving relationship in this way, and so depart from me. And so the Bible talks about that. It says the same thing in Galatians 4, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. Talking about as they become believers and they become known by God in this way. And so the Bible talks about this idea of foreknowledge being a saving relationship with God that leads. And so it's not this. 
It is not that God looks down the corridor of time and sees what you do, and then he responds to that and then goes back. That's not what the Bible teaches. But there's another thing I want us to consider here as we think about that. Maybe objections are are things that we get a little off on. The Bible never speaks of God's election in response to your faith. Say that again. God never, the Bible never speaks of God's electing you or election, predestining you, calling you in this way as a response to your faith. It doesn't work that way. In fact, it says the opposite of that over and over and over again. 1 Timothy 1.9, he saved and called us to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace. You hear that? The reason or the way that he has saved you and he has called you is because of his own sovereign purposes and his grace. Whoa. It's not he looked down the corridor of time and saw, oh, you're a pretty good person, so I choose you. Or or you look at the different verses that Paul brings out in Romans over and over. In Romans chapter 11, Paul's talking about Jews that have become Christians that are now believers and those that have not. And he's talking about how if you go all the way back in the history of Israel, not all of Israel was saved. They weren't saved by just being ethnic Jews. They were saved by faith, believing in the promises of what God was going to do. And so he talks about there's a difference between those that have put their faith in Christ and those that have not. And he says this in Romans chapter 11. There is a remnant. He's talking about the part that has come to faith, that has put their faith in Jesus. And he says they are chosen by grace. But if it is grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. You hear what he's saying? It's by God's sovereign grace, not their works. God's not responding to them. We are responding to God's grace. It begins with him. And so that's why Luke can say here in the second half of this verse, as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. Because it it starts with God and His electing grace, His purposes, His sovereign will. Romans 9, though they were not yet born and done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who called. And it says it over and over and over again. I don't want to belabor this. But it's not look down the corridor of time. It's not see what you would do. And then he responds. It starts with him. But even if we believe that was the case. Even if we said, well, foreknowledge, I think it means he looked down the corridor of time. And he saw what you would do. And he saw your faith. And then God goes back and elects. Even if it were that. The Bible clearly says that your faith is a gift of God by grace. You ever consider that? Your ability to believe. Your reason that you ever went, I am a sinner and I am in desperate need and I need a Savior. The Bible teaches that it's by God's grace in your life. Even your faith begins with Him. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Somebody asked you the question, why did you put your faith in Jesus? Well, I believe. Well, why did you believe? And the Bible's answer is because of God's grace. It's not just in Ephesians 2, 2 Timothy 2, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. But be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Right? He says you be kind, and you be gracious, and you walk with people, and you ask their questions in the hope that God would be gracious and allow them to see the truth. There's a lot of verses like this. And it says it over and over again. Acts 16, we haven't got there yet. But we're going to be introduced to a woman named Lydia shortly from the city of Thyatira. A seller of purple fabric, a worshiper of God, was listening. And then it says, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Well, how did Lydia become a believer? The purpose is God's grace and his will opened her eyes and allowed her to see it, and then she put her faith in God. And you see that in Acts? Probably the most clear place you see it is John 6 when Jesus talks. You know what he says? John 6, 65, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. He'll go on to say, My sheep hear my voice, and I don't lose a single one. No one can take them from me. And what you get is this overwhelming witness in the Bible is that it all comes back that this is a gift of God's purpose and His grace. Why Luke says almost flippantly in passing, as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. So here's the question, or maybe here's the problem, and and I don't know where you stand in all that. Maybe this is a new idea to you. Somebody go, I don't know about all that. Or or if you're thinking deeply with me, or maybe you've thought about it before, there's some objections that come pretty quickly with this. The first being, if I go back to that class when I first heard this when I'm 17 years old, is that's not fair. You're telling me it begins and ends with God and He sovereignly chooses and it's completely up to Him? How is that fair? And by the way, if you're sitting here today and you you think that, that's okay. It's a good question to ask. It means you're thinking deeply. It's okay to ask that question. So is that fair? And and I want you just to consider something, and this isn't going to cover all of it, but I want you just to consider this. If we ask that question, that's not fair. Or what if some were not chosen? Or if it completely depends on God, how does that work? And how can He be good? But underlying that question is the assumption that God is obligated to save us. I know that's a hard thing to even hear as I say it. Of course, God is good and He wants to save all people. And how does that work? But I want you to think for just a second. Would it be fair if God saved none? 
Would that be fair? Would that be just? Would that be righteous of God? He created us in His image and He placed us on the earth and He set us in this and He is the creator and sustainer who holds all things together. We exist because He says so. If He removes us from His thought for a millisecond, we cease to be. He upholds us by the power of His Word. We exist because God says so. It is His world. He holds it together. And then He puts us in this world, and he says, I am the center of all of it, and I want you to make me the center, and the only rule I have is you trust me. And what do we do as people? I think I got this. I think I can define myself on my own understanding. I think I can do okay without you in this. I'll do this myself. You know what, God? Thanks for the advice, but I'm good. And we do that over and over and over and over again on a daily basis. Our conscience bears witness who God is and the way we're supposed to respond to Him, and we ignore that. He reveals Himself in His Word, ultimately perfectly in His Son, and we still go, ah, I think I got it. And so would God be just Would he be fair? Is he obligated to save any? Could he, as he has done in the past, through through God's word, open up the earth and swallow us up in that moment when we sin? Yeah, he could. And he'd be perfectly just to do so. And so if we reframe that question a little bit, is it fair... Is he obligated to save? And we look at it as the fact that he uh, saves any. That he continues to allow us to go day to day. He continues to give us grace and mercy in our lives and we continue to draw breath. The fact that he does that is a testimony to his incredible grace. And the Bible tells us that. And it shows us that image. But when we reframe the whole conversation, it would be fair for God to wipe out all of us. But because He's gracious and because He's long-suffering and because He's merciful, He chooses to save some. Next question or objection that usually comes is, what about free will? Doesn't that violate the idea that I have the choice and it's up to me? You do have choices. You have real choices with real consequences every day in your life. Every single one of us. But I don't know if you've ever considered this, but there were only two people, two humans, apart from Jesus, who's fully God and fully human, but two humans that God created that had free will. It was Adam and Eve. The first two people God set on his earth and he put them there and they were morally in a place that they could choose right and wrong. And God said, you trust me. Yeah, I don't think so. And as they do, sin enters the world. And then from that point on, sin has marred God's creation. Every single one of us is born into sin. And the choices that we will make in and of ourselves is to always make ourselves the center. 
Man's heart and intentions are desperately wicked. From our youth, from the very moment we're born, we continue to rebel against God. And it takes miraculous work of God for us to be able to choose Him. And so God being gracious and loving and merciful comes in and He opens your eyes to see Him and then you choose Him. But it takes God working first for that to happen. You understand? And so when we start to make those objections and we go, no, 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 that's not... I just say to you, I don't think that we're following what Scripture says. We're not holding fast to the things that Bible actually tells us, that God shows first, that it's His sovereign will. It is the purposes of His will and His grace. And before you had done anything, He chose some for salvation. Now, I know that doesn't answer all of it. There's still struggles with that. And I don't mean this as a cop-out, but there gets to points where we just have to say it gets to the limits of our understanding. And so it tells us clearly that according to the purpose of His will, and because of His purpose and His grace, and before you had done anything, it's all His choosing and all His doing. It's what we get in the Bible. And we go, well, how does He choose? And how does that fare? And how does that work? And what are the ends of that? And the answer to that is, I don't know. We come to a spot on the map. Right? Have you ever seen a really, really old map? And there's just blank spots that they haven't discovered yet. There's blank spots. How does God sovereignly choose and how does He do that? We don't know. And so we have to come to those places and go, that's where we get to the blank spot and I don't know how that works. Exactly. I just know what God's revealed and what He's told me and what He's shown me ultimately in His Son, Jesus, and what He's done for us. And this is what I know. That He is perfectly just. And He is perfectly loving. And He is perfectly merciful. And He is perfectly gracious. And when He says He chooses by no doing of your own, and it's His complete and sovereign will, and He is gracious, I believe Him. You go, okay. I don't know all the answers. Go back to Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things of God are secret. He doesn't have to explain himself to me. He has chosen to tell us a ton of things about who he is. But there are parts of that that we don't know. And we have to be able to rest and trust him in that. But here's where I want to end. And it talked about misconceptions, maybe objections we have. But why is this good news? I think it's good news for this reason because it places God at the center of all things. It begins and ends with Him. If we go to the other side of that and we make it all about our free will and our choice and it's me that chooses and some don't choose and this is the way it works and it all comes back to me, it makes me the center of my salvation. I did this. I figured this out. I saw it. And God is no longer the sinner. I'm now the sinner. And that is not what the Bible says. Because He sovereignly chose you in Him before the foundation of the world. And when we get that, it 
should lead us to this place. Why? Why would he choose me? I don't know. Because of his grace. That's all I've got. Because he was gracious. And what it does is it cuts off my heart wanting to make it about what I did. It's not what I did. It's what God did because He's good and He's loving and He's gracious. And He chose, and I can't tell you why. All I know is that He's good. And when I want to make it about, well, look at what I did, or at least I'm not that person, or maybe I did. No! It is God's grace and His grace alone. Even in my ability to believe. And when I see that, it lands me in this. A deep, deep humility. There's nothing I can look at in myself and go, this is why I'm a Christian. Other than God is gracious. And when we see that, and we start to look down on others, or we start to be ugly, or we start to get into factions, and it's us against them, and we're not those people, and we're not... No! It is just God's grace. And then it leads to a deep thankfulness. That's all I can say is, thank you, God. Thank you that you've loved me in that way. And so as we end, I just want you to consider this, and I'll close with kind of this idea. There's a lot of bad things that can come out of teachings in the Bible real quickly if we don't keep them in the center of the biblical tension that God gives us. One reaction is, well, God does it and He chooses, and so I don't have to do anything. That is a lie. The Bible tells you you are to proclaim the glory of who God is, but here's the good news of that, is you are not ultimately... It is not ultimately up to you to save anyone. You can't do it. It takes a work of God, a miracle of God, to open their eyes for them to see it, for that to ever happen. So what it should do is, it should make us very bold in our witness. It's not up to me. I can't screw it up. But at the same time, it makes me completely and totally reliant on God's movement for that to happen, because I can't do it. So we want to live in the center of that biblical tension. It should greatly encourage us. God is going to do what He's going to do, and it's going to be good. And He chooses us to be part of that, and we get to be part of that. But you can't screw it up. I'm so thankful for that, because I definitely, definitely would screw it up. But because it's all His grace, we can rest in that. So I I know this is a great, big, huge idea. We just kind of waded into some very deep waters of the way the Bible reveals that and what it looks like and how that works. And if you don't agree with me, that's okay. That's fine. Let's have those conversations. I know some men in my life that love the Lord and love the Bible, and they don't fully agree with me on that. And that's okay. I think they're wrong, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, say that, but but I want us to say there, there is a unity in my 
friends that don't agree with me completely on that, we do believe it's all Jesus. That we are saved the same way. And it all is Christ. And we want to hold to that. But I think there's some really important things about humility that comes from understanding God's grace in our life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious truth of your word. We thank you for the passages that are hard. That reveal your will about the ways that you work what you do and how you do it, and things that test the limits of our understanding. And so we just confess this morning that you are God and we are not, that you are greater than we are, that we fully cannot understand the mind of God, but we can't keep from revealing yourself to us. I pray that as we have these conversations around these things and we wrestle with them together, that you would reveal yourself more fully to us, that we would be a people that is under your word. That we would let your word stand over us in all these things. That we would take seriously what your word says. That we would wrestle with those things. That we would continue to rely on you as you reveal yourself to us. But most of all, we pray that Jesus would be glorified in all of it. It is your marvelous grace and mercy that any of us are saved. And for that, we simply say thank you. We pray all of it in Jesus' precious name.